This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Rye, rye, and rye. Today, let's talk about something that gets a lot of people confused, sometimes including me. The differences between all the grasses that have rye in their name. We have perennial rye, Italian rye grass, and cereal rye. There's actually a lot more, but these are the main ones we deal with in this area. Annual ryegrass is often called Italian ryegrass in this area. Most of the country doesn't even use the name Italian. To them, it's just annual ryegrass. There are a bunch of different varieties of annual ryegrass, and it is a common mixture in yard grasses. Though, it is best not to use those for yards in this area because they're often used as a cheap filler. The Latin name for annual or Italian ryegrass is Lolium multiflorum. The multiflorum is pretty common for a species with such a diverse number of wild types and cultivated varieties. That being said, there is a big difference between the wild, invasive weeds that we call Italian rye and the planted cover crops that we call annual rye, even though it is the same species. The invasive Italian ryegrass is common in our wheat fields and is resistant to a number of herbicides, including glyphosate and ALS inhibitors. The planted annual ryegrass that we use for cover crops has no resistance to these herbicides. Same grass, very different backgrounds. That being said, planted annual ryegrass being used as a cover crop can become an issue in wheat fields if it's not controlled before going to seed. Annual Italian ryegrass has an extensive root system and can grow in shallow or wet, heavy clay soils. It grows fast and can be used as a forage or as a nursery crop. It is no wonder why we use it so frequently in cover crops and pastures, but the herbicide-resistant wild types grow so well in our heavy clay soils. Perennial ryegrass, Latin name Lolium perinti, is much less common in fields around here and is more likely farther north. Around here, it is more of a yard grass due to its lower production and lower growing nature. Another very likely reason it isn't common in fields here is that it isn't a complete perennial in this area. It won't likely survive for a long term like fescue or timothy. It is also not very drought resistant. In this area, fescue just outperforms it in the fields. And yes, annual ryegrass and perennial ryegrass can combine. Actually, both annual and perennial ryegrass are both diploid, meaning they have two sets of chromosomes, and tetraploid, meaning they have four sets of chromosomes. The chromosomal diversity is why there are so many different types of ryegrass. The third one, cereal rye, is nothing like the other two. It's not even the same family, its Latin name being Cicale cereal. It is also an annual, but it's more similar to wheat and barley in its use and seed size. Cereal rye is actually pretty cool for a number of reasons. First of all, it is by far the most cold tolerant, and the seeds are able to germinate in any soil above freezing, though at this temperature it can take a long time for it to germinate. Cereal rye also grows quickly and taller than wheat, and it does pretty well on low nutrient situations. Cereal rye is pretty common cover crop because it grows so fast, but also because it has a special aleopathic ability. It creates a chemical around it that keeps weed seeds from germinating. Fortunately, corn and soybean seeds are too big and planted too deep to be affected by the chemical. There is a good reason why cereal rye is the workhorse in the vast majority of our cover crop mixes. Give me a call if you want to talk about rye. Of course, the first thing I'm going to be asking is what kind of rye we are actually talking about. Please give me a call at 620-724-8233. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. There are many reasons for weak or stillborn calves. 
Most are in the wait and see column, but there is something that needs to be on the cattle producers' minds right now about calving season. With the drought situation and the lack of fresh forages for livestock to eat, most in Southeast Kansas are consuming a diet largely consisting of preserved forage. You know, hay. Fresh green forages contain very high levels of vitamin A, so it's rare for this deficiency to occur during a normal pasture season. But problems occur during drought conditions and when grasses become dormant, making vitamin A deficiency primarily a winter issue. Forages harvested still green in color will contain some vitamin A, but at very low levels. Being the least stable of all the vitamins, elevated temperatures and long days of sunlight of hay season cause most vitamin A to oxidize and disappear. Cows on green pasture will store vitamin A enough to last two to four months. Outside of those months, most herds will offer a trace mineral vitamin pack. However, it's common to still see deficiencies in supplemented herds. Some mineral packs don't contain the appropriate amount of vitamin A. Normal, free choice mineral and vitamin supplement dosage is two to four ounces per head per day. To meet the needs of a 1400 pound cow that only consumes two ounces of mineral, the supplement needs to have 300,000 international units of vitamin A per pound. A majority of supplements contain half that. Another supplement consideration is the intake variation among cows. Some research suggests that up to 14% of cows don't consume any dry mineral supplement at all and others eat varying amounts. Lastly, it doesn't matter what level of vitamin A is contained in the supplement, if it isn't consistently available for livestock to snack on. I've mentioned that vitamin A is unstable. Standard feeds lose about 1% per month, but when coupled with a trace mineral, as with most supplement packs, the loss increases to 9%. Product purchased six months ago may only contain half the vitamin A now. What are the alternatives to cool season forages or purchasing supplements on an as-needed basis? In some cases, Injectable vitamin A makes sense. If a herd is presently experiencing a deficiency, an injection to cows yet to calve will have immediate effects. Keep in mind that the injectable vitamin A still has a short period of effectiveness, one to two months. So timing is critical. Excessive vitamin A can be toxic. Use your vet's advice on product and dosage. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office. 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties, with your K-State Research and Extension report. While we've been enjoying the colorful fall leaves, wildlife in the area have had other priorities. Some animals are looking for their winter homes and stocking up on food, while others are going into their reproductive cycles. What do these changes have to do with us, though? Hopefully not a lot, but they can impact our daily lives. House mice have a reproductive cycle that run year-round and a female can have 5 to 10 litters per year. The average lifespan of a house mouse is 9 to 12 months. This means that there are house mice that are always on the move and always looking for food. 
Why do mice try to move indoors? Because there is a decrease in vegetation and movement outside during the winter months, we start to see more activity inside our homes. Mice will be on the lookout for warmer places to build their nests and to look for food. Be sure to check your home for cracks and get them sealed. Mice can squeeze between cracks that are only a quarter of an inch wide. These can temporarily be plugged with steel wool, but a full filling of caulking or a barrier is the best measure of protection. What about squirrels? Mice aren't the only animals preparing for winter. Squirrels have been working this summer and fall to bury nuts for them to forage later this winter. Squirrels mate in mid to late winter and again in early summer. If you've got nut producing trees in your yard, you are probably seeing an increase in squirrel movement as they collect their food source. Most squirrels won't be a nuisance in the fall as they are in the summer when they work to sharpen their teeth on any wood they can find. This can include outdoor furniture on occasion. What about larger animals like deer? Deer, the one species of wildlife that can be truly dangerous in the fall, is the white-tailed deer. Their rut runs from September to February, but hits its peak in November. This means that both male and females are on the move in search of a mate, and busy roadways are not a deterrent. This activity takes place most often at dusk and dawn. Unfortunately, this is also when most of us are on the move, either on our way to and from work, especially with the recent time change. Please keep a close eye on the roads this fall and winter. Deer can easily blend in with their surroundings and escape our notice. If you see a deer while driving, it is safer to break and hit the deer than to break and swerve. More fatalities occur when swerving to avoid the deer than when accepting the collision. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. This is Jesse Gilmore with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. To celebrate tree planting season, we will be doing a mini-series on some of the best trees to put in your landscape, as well as things to watch out for with certain species. This week's talk is about the walnut. There are two species of walnuts commonly grown, the English walnut and the black walnut. Black walnuts are far more common in our area since we lie within its native range. These trees can grow from 100 to 130 feet tall in the wild, although under landscape cultivation more often only grow to 70 feet. Location is important when choosing where to plant new black walnut trees, as walnuts falling onto cars have occasionally been known to make dense and cracked windshields. These trees are better off away from streets where people can't park under them. As with most food-producing plants, the walnuts are the star of the walnut tree. In states like Missouri, black walnuts are grown commercially as a native food crop with few outright pests. People who try black walnuts often swear by their flavor when compared to English walnuts, but good luck finding someone who has tried one. Black walnut shells are notoriously hard to crack, often requiring specialized machinery to unlock the proverbial treasure chest. Even if you can't get to the nuts themselves, the mature brown husks can be used to make a dye or coloring agent. 
Keep in mind that these will stain your hands and anything else they touch, so wear clothes you're okay with marring with the deep brown dye of the husk. One trait unique to walnuts is their ability to kill nearby plants. Walnuts emit a chemical called juglone that causes walnut wilt in plants susceptible to it. Every part of the walnut emits juglone, including roots. Even after being removed, the stumps and roots left over in the soil can still emit juglone for years, where it will break down chemically over time. It is juglone that gives the husks of the walnut their dark brown color. It is always important to choose juglone-resistant plants to grow around the base of walnut trees. As with almost all other trees, there is one major issue that needs addressing when thinking about planting a walnut, the prevalence of thousand canker disease. This disease, spread by the walnut twig beetle, is lethal to black walnut and requires knowledge of its symptoms and carriers. It has not been identified in either Kansas or Missouri, so occasional scouting for twig beetle tunnels in your tree bark and keeping felled walnut trees in one place can help reduce the chance of spreading this disease to near zero, allowing others to enjoy the many benefits of walnut trees. Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri all have their own respective seedling programs put on by their state conservation department or forest service to sell native trees like black walnuts. For more information on the Kansas Seedling Conservation Program, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of The Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.